Interested in taking a deep dive each week into a compliance or compliance-related topic? Then Compliance Into the Weeds is the podcast for you. Join Matt Kelly, the coolest guy in compliance, and Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, as they go into the weeds to flesh out a story which you can use to better inform your compliance program. Both you and your compliance program will be the better for listening to this podcast. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, back again with the coolest guy in compliance, Matt Kelly, for another episode. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the Novartis FCPA enforcement action, uh, which was announced uh, last week. So, Matt, first of all, welcome. Hello, Tom. Good to be here. Matt, we had a wide-ranging set of bribery schemes involving Novartis, its subsidiary Alcon, uh, in countries such as Greece, Vietnam, China, um, and Korea. Uh, Lots to talk about, lots of bribery schemes, lots of internal control violations, and lots of others. So what uh, you want to maybe lay out the basic facts? Yeah, the basic facts are that uh, Novartis is going to wind up paying $345 million to settle civil and criminal FCPA charges. Um, Novartis will not need to hire a compliance monitor as part of this deal, but will have a three-year deferred prosecution agreement. Um, it, Tom, correct me if I omit any details, because as you said, there's a lot of details in this and twists and turns. Um, but the misconduct happened in the early to mid 2010s and maybe a little bit in the end of the 2000s. Uh, so, for example, in Greece, Novartis executives were paying to send doctors and hospital officials to medical conferences uh, around the world, which really was just a front for bribery with those officials who are government employees in Greece. Uh, in Korea, They were funneling improper payments to medical professionals via third-party medical journals, which is an interesting one. I have not heard that before in my FCPA studies. Uh, And then, of course, they would pass along those payments uh, from Novartis to the third-party medical journal to the doctors in Korea. Again, same deal, state employees, so it's an FCPA issue. Uh, In Vietnam, their subsidiary, Alcon, which is now an independent company. It was spun out of Novartis in 2019. But at the time, in the 2010s, it was part of Novartis. Um, they were I also, I think, doing uh, more bribery and improper payments. I will admit I'm not even exactly sure how they funneled that off in Vietnam. I think there were in other parts of Asia. There was all sorts of stuff, Tom, you could talk about. Uh, equipment that they were leasing to customers and then forgiving it and then taking a write-off on the leasing, except they were accounting for it incorrectly. Um, Bail me out on that point there because I thought that was interesting, but I so far have only really focused on the Greece travel conference end of this uh, caper, but there's a lot here. And we can talk about accounting controls and various schemes of how things work. It, the 345 million in total breaks down as $233 million to the Justice Department for the criminal charges, $112 million to the Securities and Exchange Commission for the civil charges, and that's all of it in a nutshell, but it's a very big walnut to crack open and dissect. 
So in uh, Asia, Alcon uh, had three basic bribery schemes. In uh, Korea, they utilized improper payments uh, for the medical journal activities, which, as you correctly noted, was not something we had seen before. Uh, the uh, payments were made directly to the medical journals who distributed the payments to the HCPs. In uh Vietnam, they used a distributor to make improper payments, and we have some interesting internal control issues around that. Also, as you noted, Matt, in China, the company placed uh, surgical equipment in hospitals and then uh, claimed that these were going to be leased. There was no evidence of the value of the equipment. Uh, There were some occasional lease payments, but they were not counted for correctly under the accounting protocols of the company. And then when uh, the internal auditors went to actually look for the equipment, um, they found that they were either not there, they had been chopped up, they were uh, sent to other hospitals and couldn't be uh, located, and the company had to forgive the payments and then didn't, of course, reserve for that. So uh, lots of interesting things in Greece, though. We had, uh, no doubt inspired by uh, either Steven Spielberg or George Lucas, we had names for the schemes. So we had the investment scheme. I like that one because they invested in people uh, flying them to international medical congresses. Uh, One near and dear to our heart, the influencer scheme or key opinion leaders who were paid to influence the healthcare profession. And then the one that I really did want to explore a little bit with you, which was uh, started out as a clinical study and then morphed into a bribery uh, payment program called the Exactly Scheme. And there... The clinical studies seem to be a legitimate clinical studies. There are multiple phases in clinical studies, and the last phase was to garner patient information. And uh, so hospitals in Greece would uh, fill out names, uh, information on the patient's medical conditions, etc., the results of the trials of Novartis products. And somehow this scheme morphed into straight payments for the HCPs turning over paper with information filled out, but the information was nonsensical. It was cut and pasted. It was often incorrect. So what intrigued me about that scheme was how something that originally did not seem to be connected to bribery and corruption could be used or morphed into a vehicle to actually pay bribes and how even when internal audit uh, raised questions about this clinical study, uh, somehow the morphing was done and no one followed up on it. You know, I thought all of this about Greece was interesting because so often it became clear that the Greek doctors and the Novartis employees in Greece, they really just like they all knew that this was a bribery scheme, regardless of what the actual precise scheme was. Um, the exactly scheme on you know, basically turning a clinical study into an opportunity to funnel money to doctors. Uh, I hadn't heard of something like that before either. Um, But if you delve into the email records, you can clearly see the sales reps at Novartis Greece knew exactly what they were trying to do with the exactly scheme, with the travel conferences, with everything else. Uh, What I decided to focus on and why I liked the Greece 
operation. I focused more on the influencers and the key opinion leaders was it really speaks to an opportunity for data analytics to uncover misconduct that might otherwise not be visible. Um, so let me just walk through what the influencers travel conference scheme was there. Um, you know, if you work in pharmaceutical or life sciences, you know that there's a lot of conferences that happen. And so what happens is a large pharmaceutical firm uh, will pay a sponsorship fee for a conference. And then that gives them the right to send a certain number of people to the event. And that can be employees or it could be medical professionals. Maybe they are working with you on some clinical study and they want to present their findings. So you pay the sponsorship. You get to t- five tickets and you're going to take four doctors working on a study of one of your drugs and they go and they present their findings. It is worth remembering that number one, indirect sponsorship is like it still happens in the pharmaceutical industry today. It's not necessarily inherently inappropriate or wrong. And you could even as a company, you could spend money to court these government officials, which is what healthcare professionals are in many countries, you could give them travel costs to fly them off to a business conference where they do some sort of presentation. Now, that is high risk. Uh, They are government employees. You would want documentation up the wazoo to make sure that you can demonstrate the purity of your motives. However, unto itself, what all of this was, was like, on the face of it, it wasn't necessarily illegal or inappropriate. But like I said, you really need to document exactly who is going, why they're going, what the company is getting out of it, if anything, other than just the greater glory of the advancement of medicine. Well, in Novartis's case, they had documented pretty much the opposite, was that they were looking for the greater glory of Novartis sales of their macular degeneration drug, uh, Lucentis. So they were going to be spending thousands of dollars per doctor or per key opinion leader to fly them around the world to these conferences. And then lo and behold, these were seen as investments. And that was the actual word employees used in Novartis meetings. We are investing this much in this doctor here or this key opinion leader there. And they were very forthright in their emails about this is a return on investment. And if we are not maximizing our ROI, We, the senior managers, have to tell the sales reps to tell the doctors, if we don't see our Lucentis sales go up, we're going to shut all of this down, and then you don't get to go anywhere. Um, It was very clearly seen as a mechanism to court and woo doctors so they would then prescribe more or purchase more Lucentis, uh, the eye drug for Novartis. Now, What I thought was interesting and the data analytics angle that stood out to me is that the marketing team had a very sophisticated uh, ability to track who their key opinion leaders were and who their best prescribing doctors were. So they had the data there to show these are our high value customers. What I would put forth then, the data analytics play, is that a compliance team could also look at sales and marketing expenses related to these improper or not improper, these these indirect conference sponsorships where we're spending this much money to fly these many people around the world. Well, 
you would need proper policies and procedures to carry this out. But you, if you did know who are these doctors we're flying around, what are their actual names, and how much are we spending to fly them around, and then you cross-reference that with your sales data. Who are these doctors prescribing so much, and are they prescribing more and more and more? And if you find that there is a match, then you would be able to reasonably say, this is interesting. As a compliance officer, I see that we're spending a boatload of money on Dr. So-and-so, and and Dr. So-and-so seems to be prescribing more and more and more of our drugs. Um, That would be a plausible red flag for a compliance officer to then look into why this guy, why this woman, you know, what are the emails saying? And then suddenly you can go and launch a more formal investigation. Um, I'm hot to trot on this idea because a couple of people said to me once I posted about this, said, well, look, having the data is nice, but data analytics might not uncover this. It's really about the access to the emails. Well, kind of, but I would respectfully push back on that and say, looking at the emails, step two or three, because whatever you might be doing in year one or two to court these people and to spend money on them, flying them around and how much sales that they're getting by year three or four of that process, you are going to have some historical data that you could look at. And that was my point here is that if you do the analytics, what they had been courting these doctors to do in years one or two, if it's translated into many more sales by year three or four, then that would tell you, I want to look at the emails related to this doctor here. Why are we talking about this person or this collection of doctors? And it might just say, all right, clearly the sales team is doing something here that is paying off do we have any knowledge about why the sales team is doing this? And then you could look at the emails, which you always have to look at eventually. And then you could find out they're talking about the incentive programs and the ROI. And then it's going to stick, stick out like a sore thumb that this is a bribery scheme. But um, you could do all of that because data analytics would give you the insight to ask that question. And that is regardless of the funny business they might be trying to do on slipping through marketing expenses uh, or slipping bribes through his marketing expenses and the accounting controls there. The data is the data. And if you have collected enough of it, you analyze it in the right way, that's going to stand out and you know, tell the compliance officer, look deeper here. And that that was the point I that stood out to me. Man, I, I absolutely agree with that. Uh, I, did, I would only add that that data is available uh, to a corporation because every corporation measures the amount of prescription or every pharmaceutical company or medical company measures the amount of prescriptions that doctors uh, write uh, of their products. So that's going to be something that's well known. We have cost yeah. of these travels at uh, a gross amount of $89,000 in one year for 10 individuals. And even I can average that out. Uh, 8900 is a very high amount to spend for an event. Uh, now, I recognize it could be its travel. It's the uh, uh, conference admission fee, it's room board, et cetera. But when you get to that level, that's got to trigger, trigger a red flag. And I would think there, there would be enhanced scrutiny by the compliance function. But the secondary data uh, analytics that you have just outlined, 
uh, that should be ready av- readily available to any organization. Now, the data may be siloed, but it's certainly going uh, to be available. And that same analysis, if I could move that forward to some of the other bribery schemes, in uh, Vietnam, we had a distributor who actually paid the bribes, and that distributor billed back to Alcon for the monies to pay the bribes. And that billing include uh, expenses for human resources, for IT, for marketing. And all of those expenses were completely out of whack for every other distributor uh, that they utilized. That's another way uh, that uh, the data analytics could have come into play on the equipment write-off issue in China, same uh, issue around the individual equipment. What's the value of the equipment? Uh, What's the value of the lease? You can do a straight regression analysis to see if that's uh, a fair market value. But if you don't know the equipment or uh, the value of it, uh, it all falls apart. So um, every one of these, I think, with the possible exception of the Korean scheme, which paid for um, non-existent uh, professional articles in medical journals or pharmaceutical journals, uh, I think all of these schemes would have uh, certainly, uh, data analytics would have at least raised the questions that you posed, and it would have shown the anomalies that then you could take a deep dive into the documents, into the emails, into the in, in, in individual transactions. Yeah, and I should say I have a tinge of sympathy maybe for Novartis at the time because I don't know how sophisticated the analytics would have been at the time of this misconduct, which was, say, 2010 through 2015. There's no reason why you shouldn't be able to do that today. Uh, And, Tom, you raised a couple of good points that I wanted to pick up on. First off, specific to pharmaceutical industry you absolutely do need to know which of your doctors are prescribing the most drugs because if you don't know that and say you're selling opioids, uh, the federal regulators on the medical side, let's just the Food and Drug Administration or um, Medicare and Medicaid over here, they will be on you like a ton of bricks if you cannot track who are your key prescribers. Um, so you absolutely do know in that field who your big customers are. And even the key opinion leaders idea, where somebody else had told me that key opinion leaders are fairly standard in a lot of industries. Well, if they're key opinion leaders, that means they are somewhat high profile and uh, influential. And in most countries in healthcare, they're government employees. Like that also means, you know, I, I don't know if I would go so far as to say they're the healthcare industry's version of a politically exposed person, but there's something like that. There are clearly people that you have to keep an eye on from a compliance perspective. So for healthcare, for a lot of this, like you absolutely do know it. Um, you had also mentioned the Vietnam operation where the distributor was billing back exorbitant amounts for all sorts of things. Well, as you were reading that off, my very first thought was go back to the basics of the Justice Department guidance on FCPA programs from 2012, where they have that whole list of effective compliance program hallmarks and third parties. And what are you supposed to ascertain about a third party? That its fees are customary and appropriate for what it is providing to you. And that's what data analytics can uncover. Uh, If you would find out that all of our other distributors are charging only X, but this guy is charging 4X, 
clearly that is an anomaly. And as soon as you do, that is right on point with the Justice Department guidance. Is this customary or not? No, it's not. Well, why not? And then you can go from there. Now, what are you going to find in the emails once you start looking? Who knows? And, uh, you know, we can take that as it comes. But data analytics is all just about telling you, I have to go dive into the emails and the other data here, here, and here, not on all these other things. And it, it just it you see that theme over and over with the specific allegations in the Novartis uh, settlement here. So I want to go into the emails because I have a separate uh, course on don't put stupid stuff in emails, and they put some incredibly stupid stuff in emails. So I'm just going to read some that were in the Novartis information um, on the Greek uh, health study. We all know this very well. I repeat, the doctor believes that he, she is participating in a study and gets paid for what he prescribes in reality, not for what he writes in the study. Uh, the, do- the main issues, the doctors believe the study was conducted in order for them to get paid, right? Uh, that the clinical study is part of the marketing mix. We do not disagree that this type of information should be provided to doctors. They all know that they will get paid, and this is in reality what happens. To be honest, the studies were conducted in a similar way in the past as well. They were conducted as marketing projects. That's within quotation marks between us. So, you know, don't put stupid stuff in emails, and these idiots always do. So uh, you have to look at the emails, but you have to look at these larger patterns. Data analytics is not going to tell you you've got a problem. It's going to raise an anomaly. It's going to raise a red flag. It's going to show you a pattern in rake leaves. And you're absolutely right. When you have your top 10 prescribers or your 10 people you're flying around at 8,900 per to go to international conferences, then you need to take a deep dive. When your distributor is overcharging you for marketing costs, for HR costs, and something called market reconciliation costs, uh, uh, that's as a tr- uh, opaque a phrase as you can have. Then, uh, then you need to take a deeper dive when your uh, financial function calls a clinical study a quote black box end quote. Uh, that tells you that you need to get in and take a look at it to see uh, what is in there. If a business unit. Uh, can't explain it to you or can't show it to you or you can't understand what it is, then there's no business reason for it to move forward. Uh, I agree with all of that. I would just say that as a member of the media, I strongly support putting dumb things in emails. I think that's wonderful for me when I read it later on. Um, but no, you're, you're absolutely right on all of this. Tom, my other question about the FCPA case here is just I am intrigued that this is now the second FCPA settlement we have had with Novartis, because I know that they had settled a prior misconduct incident, I think in 2016 or something. I will admit I am not familiar with the prior one, but this just comes back to me that I still wonder about uh, the FCPA corporate enforcement policy from the Justice Department, which showers leniency on companies um, if they step forward, if they remediate, if they cooperate. But we've never actually stepped out and answered, what if this is your second time going through the program? Now, I know this isn't because their first incident happened before the program came about in 2017. But 
I keep on wondering about these recidivist FCPA companies and what does it say about either their compliance program or the Justice Department's appetite for enforcing more strongly the second time around? I don't know if you have any thoughts, but I'd be curious. Uh, Absolutely. And that's something that, unfortunately, we are not able to ascertain from these settlement documents. Uh, And it's an open question that I think really bears an important discussion, at least from the the Department of Justice's perspective. And uh, this would have seemed to have been a case to have done so. It's unclear how this information got to the Department of Justice. As I recall, there was no credit for self-disclosure. So perhaps uh, this was a, a follow-on carry-on or discovered as a part of that original case. Uh, we just don't know at this point. And, and I have to throw out Conspiracy Tom has an incredibly juicy detail that everyone should recall that Novartis actually hired Michael Cohen um, before he went to prison and after he was Donald Trump's lawyers to uh, be a consultant for them in February of 2017. So uh, open question why I will leave that to your conspiratorial imaginations, but I raise that uh, as well. I won't get into the Michael Cohen conspiracy. I'll let that speak for itself, but I, I'm going to be on my FCPA recidivist soapbox for a while. But the other thing that I will keep coming back to probably from now until November is how will this FCPA enforcement policy work with recidivists if we are in a Democratic administration in another six months, which right now I think is more probable than not. And if you want to have a lax enforcement environment, uh, which clearly the Republicans do, then this policy acts one way. But if you want to have this recidivist or this enforcement policy and the recidivist question hanging around with supposedly a more aggressive appetite under a Democratic administration. I don't know that that's going to happen. We have no idea who an attorney general might be in the Biden administration. But how would these things work in a Democratic administration? And people are going to have to start thinking more and more about that because it is right now at least even money, if not more likely than not. That's what's going to be here come January 2021. And I'll just I'll be curious to see it. Uh, that's a great point, and uh, we're definitely going to have to watch that story. Uh, you have uh, suggested publicly on this podcast that Elizabeth Warren could uh, lead the Senate. How about I throw out that she could be attorney general? I don't see her as attorney general. I could see her maybe as a treasury secretary. And some other day we'll talk about AML compliance and sanctions compliance and whatnot under a secretary Warren. I still think she's going to stay in the Senate, but um, Kamala Harris could be attorney general. Uh, I could see Adam Schiff, the congressman who is the head of the House Intelligence Committee. He could be the attorney general. I mean, ultimately, it's going to be this stuff is going to be enforced by somebody three or four levels below the AG, no matter who is in charge come January. But, um, you know, it could be a decidedly different climate. And maybe people will find they are more exposed when they have recidivist actions come next year. We'll, We'll see. Matt, it seems like that uh, perhaps we should end this podcast with almost an open question uh, because of some of the questions we've raised, some that may come on down the road. And and indeed, in reading and rereading the multiple settlement documents, there may be new questions raised that we need to visit about again. Very possible. Well, uh, this concludes this podcast on the Novartis Alcon FCPA enforcement action. We will leave it as an open question to you, our listeners, if we should uh, take a deeper dive into the weeds. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, Tom. 
This is Tom Fox. Thank you for listening to this episode of Compliance Into the Weeds. If you have any questions, you can email Matt at mkelly at radicalcompliance.com. You can email me, tfox, at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you will join Matt and I again next week where we take up another topic and take a deep dive into the weeds of it. Compliance Into the Weeds is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being a loyal listener. And we look forward to visiting with you again. If you have a topic you'd like us to cover, please leave a message on the speaker app on the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.